The lovely Taryn, my beautiful wife, uh, and I have lived in this region for about 10 years, a little bit more, maybe approaching 11 even. Uh, but before that, we lived in Watford. Hands up if you've ever been to Watford. Wow, loads of you. Well, you will know that finding grass in Watford is quite a difficult thing. I don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean drugs. I mean like, you know, <laughs> like just grass, you know, it's a bit of a concrete idea. <laughs> How did I get myself into that? Uh, finding, you know, just normal green grass is really difficult and, and wildlife is a bit of a premium. We just, uh, when we lived in Watford, we just had our first child and we really wanted him to experience, you know, the abundance of God's creation. And so we got ourselves one of those uh, little bird feeder things that you can hang from a tree that's full of, like, peanuts and stuff like that. And it stayed there for about a year, and not a single peanut disappeared from that thing. And then just over the course of about a year, it went moldy. That, that was how little access we had to wildlife. And so when we moved to this region, it just felt like we'd come to paradise. And, you know, we used to take our little boy to see the seals and the dolphins and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and, and even just on little trips around in the countryside, because for him, you know, little kids, like tractors are the best thing in the world. And uh, so we drive around, he'd, you know, make funny little tractor noises, like <laughs> like that. And we'd be like, that's right, it's a tractor. Uh, and then I won't go through all the farmyard noises, but he could see what a sheep was and a cow and different things like that. There was one time we were driving along, we'd not been here for very long, and um, there was like a, a flock of pigeons in the road, and he was desperately excited, little legs and arms kind of moving away, really excited, and uh, just as the car was coming towards this flock of pigeons, most of them moved out of the way, and there was just this horrible moment where Taryn and I knew that this poor pigeon was going to get it, you know, and, and the, pigeon, the pigeon moved a little bit, I think that's somebody's phone, uh, the, the Pigeon was kind of almost flew away, and then there was this almighty thud, and this thing hit the windscreen, cracked the windscreen, and then as you looked in the rearview mirror, all you could see was this cloud of feathers. And the poor little chap cried all the way home and was inconsolable. The point is, and you may be wondering what the point is, that as we journey through life, for most of us, if we look in the rearview mirror, what we see are feathers. What we see are people who are the debris of our stuff and our activity. You know, broken relationships, uh, people who we used to hang out with all the time, who we could still hang out with all the time if we chose to, but we choose not to. Uh, people who should have got the best of us, but actually in those moments they got the worst of us different, you know, and obviously for many of us, we've been hurt and we've been wounded by broken relationships, but, in, but equally, we have been the cause of other people's pain. And God is deeply concerned about not just our present relationships, but our past relationships. And what we're doing at the moment is we're doing this little series in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, and we're calling that um, series a, a relationships revolution because we're desperate that God would do something in our church in the whole realm of relationships. He would challenge, deeply challenge, the way that we relate to one another, the way we relate to our families, the way we relate to our children and our spouses, if that is the plural noun. Anyway, uh, we're just desperate for God to do something. And what we're going to see in this story 
tonight is that Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, has a moment where he needs to look in the rearview mirror and face the feathers of his past life. So if you've got your Bible with you, Genesis chapter 33 is where we're going to go. And before I read it, let me just say this. Jacob and his older brother Esau are twin brothers, and they've not seen each other for 20 years. And the reason they haven't seen each other is because Jacob um, uh, stole from his brother twice. First, and it wasn't just like he stole his yo-yo and his train set. He stole really important things. He stole his birthright and he stole his father's blessing. And uh, Esau was absolutely raging. He was furious. In fact, what it actually says is he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. And then he went on to plan to kill his brother. And so his brother ran for his life. And then uh, now 20 years later, Jacob realizes that it's time to address that relationship and to start to do something about it. So uh, Genesis chapter 33, we're going to read from verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they're the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all the flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please, accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let's be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant, while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me, and the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. Amen. Okay, so first of all, the critical importance of healthy relationships. Um, while I was waiting to go to Bible college, I stumbled into a job in a software company in London. And uh, I was initially the guy who answered the phones. But somehow, over a period of time, uh, 
I sort of found my way into a more technical area that, that basically meant that I traveled around the country on the train because I hadn't passed my driving license. And uh, I went to these places uh, and I spent all day, every day, in climate-controlled server rooms. So it was just me and computers in the room, and it was terribly, terribly lonely. And then at night, I would go and I'd stay in a hotel on my own, and then the next day I'd go back to the thing and then I'd get on the train on my own and go home on my own. And it was quite a lonely old existence. But the one thing that was like the redeeming feature of my life was the fact that I got to stay in some quite nice hotels. And I stayed in this one hotel where it was like all marble and mood lighting and all of that. And I went into the shower one night and I, I, I was just completely baffled by the technology of the shower. There were all these like buttons and things that you had to turn and all of that. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And in the end, finally, I, I kind of pressed a few things and water started coming at me like you would expect from a shower. And then suddenly I shrieked because water wasn't just coming from the top. It was like coming from every direction. I was like, what on earth is going on here? This is in the days where that was quite an, you know, uh, what's the word? Cutting edge thing. But I was just totally freaked out. And the point is, it seems to me that for so many of us, when we come to know Jesus, we we are eagerly anticipating our relationship with God, our vertical relationship between me and God to be changed, aren't we? We're expecting to come to a, a deep and rich faith in God. And we're expecting to walk with God throughout our lives and him bringing comfort and peace and joy in the hardest times. And then we're expecting to go and be with God forever. But often we're not really expecting God to be deeply interested, not in our vertical relationship with him, but in our horizontal relationships with one another. That's certainly the case for me. It's my story that after I'd become a Christian, I started to have this voracious appetite for scripture. And, and I just kind of used to read and read hours and hours every day. And the more I read, the more uncomfortable I was because the more I realized that actually God is deeply interested in the way that we relate to one another. So, for example, in the Gospels, you have these moments that G uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And he said, yeah, okay, that's, that's good, let's do that. And so he said, say these things. You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he went on a little bit and then he said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In other words, in the same way that I forgive people who wrong me, in the same way, with the same measure, Jesus, please will you forgive me? And uh, there's a whole bunch of other places in the Gospels that really we don't have much time to look at. But for example, Mark 11:25, Jesus said, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. It's almost as if his forgiveness of us is contingent on the way that we relate to one another. Matthew 5.23 If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there on the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And, and there are, it just happens again and again and again in the teachings of Jesus. He is really clear 
that broken relationships are a big deal. And if you don't hear me say anything else at all tonight, that's fine, but this is really important. Broken relationships are a big deal to God. And this stuff is everywhere through the New Testament. Another example would be in the writing of Paul. For example, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no, more, no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Or uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 14, the writer to the Hebrews says this, make every effort, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's impossible to overestimate the importance of the quality of our relationships, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we love one another, the way that we deal with hurt and pain when it comes up. Broken relationships are a big deal to God. And so we shouldn't be surprised in this story that this moment of reconciliation between Jacob and his brother is also a moment where God pours out his blessing on Jacob. And you'll see that. If you've still got your Bible open, you'll see uh, the, the chapter immediately before in Genesis, in Genesis 32 is the moment where Jacob decides that he's going to do something about this relationship with his brother. And so he, he kind of um, starts to walk towards his brother, and then he sends all these gifts on ahead. And, it, you know, you or I might send flowers or chocolates or something like that. In those days, they sent goat and goats and sheep and, and cattle and stuff like that. But it's the same kind of idea. And he sends all these gifts on ahead, and he's like saying, this relationship that's broken mustn't be like this anymore. And he's made that decision. And as he's walking towards his brother, he meets God. And he has this interaction with God that's almost like a wrestling match. And eventually it ends in God giving Jacob his blessing. It's no accident that it's as he's decided to be reconciled that God pours out, as a, pours out a blessing. It's almost as if the reconciliation releases the blessing. You might be familiar with Psalm 133. Uh, it says this, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, for there the Lord bestows his blessing. When we do this stuff right, we know the smile of God. And it also seems to me horribly obvious that when we do this stuff wrong, we don't know the blessing of God. You know, it's almost like more reconciliation, more forgiveness, more blessing. Less reconciliation, less mended relationships, less forgiveness, less blessing. You see that actually in, in the only passage of teaching on the church, in all of Jesus' teaching. Actually, frustratingly, he doesn't talk very much about the church. But there's one moment where he's sharing in Matthew 18 about the church. And he says, you know, sooner or later someone's going to, this is me paraphrasing, by the way. Sooner or later, people are going to hurt you and they're going to do stuff against you. In that moment, what I want you to do is I want you to go and try and make things right. 
and just by yourself, just go and point out your, your brother's sin to him and just say, look, could we sort this out? And if that doesn't work, then go again. Don't just give up, go again, but take somebody with you. And if that doesn't work, then keep going. And this time, take someone, you know, someone who's in leadership in your church and again go and keep trying and keep trying. And then I never noticed this before, but having talked on that stuff, um, Peter immediately responds and he says, hang on a minute, Jesus, just, I'm just wondering, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Is seven times enough? And Jesus says, are you joking? You know, seven times, just try 77 times and see how you get on. And then Jesus goes on to tell this parable, and it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And it's, we, again, we don't have time to go into the detail of it, but it, it's about this guy who is terribly unforgiving. And ultimately, because he is unforgiving, God is unforgiving. And it says, uh, 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 This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. More reconciliation, more blessing. Less reconciliation, less forgiveness, less mended relationships, less blessing. And... It just occurs to me to say that we are right in the middle at the moment of a year that we have said as a church is a year where we, we're seeking the power and the presence of God in a new way. And we're really knocking on the door of heaven. This stuff is incredibly important. And so each of us has a responsibility to look back, to face the feathers of our own life and to figure out, you know, Lord, where can I mend you know, where can I reach out to somebody? How can I try to fix some of these things? Okay, so a uh, second thing, the mending of broken relationships. What do we learn from this story about Joseph's dad, Jacob, uh, and uh, some principles that we can apply in trying to mend relationships? Let me first of all say this. I fully realize that in the time we have available tonight, this is going to come across as very simplistic. And... Broken relationships cause lots of pain. And there'll be a whole bunch of people here who are in pain because of broken relationships. And you'll start getting angry with me because you'll be like, no, 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 no. It's too, you know, you're making it sound so simplistic and so straightforward. It's not simplistic. It's not straightforward. And I just want to say I know. I realize that. And it's okay to get cross with me. And we can talk about stuff later on. And, um, but I think the process and, and just the very core on God's people to seek reconciliation is the call of God on all of us. Okay, so first of all, time is not a healer. First principle, time is not a healer. That's what people say, isn't it? You know, well, time's a great healer, and uh, just give it some time, and things will kind of calm down a bit. I don't know whether you noticed in the story, Esau is coming to his brother after 20 years. He finds that his brother's coming towards him, and he takes 400 men with him, 400 fighting men. You can see that for him, it's as if the hurt and the pain happened yesterday, and it's all still there. None of it has gone away. And the same is true of, Joseph, of, of Jacob. It says about Jacob in 32 verse 7, his emotions are great fear and distress. To be honest, as pastors, we see this stuff all the time. People who, m maybe a relationship's broken down, and they 
don't see that person for a while and they think, oh, no, no, I'm feeling better about it now. You know, I'm feeling like this is all kind of calmed down and actually it's not as raw as it was and actually things are going to be okay. And then they see that person in the supermarket and it's all as if it happened, just, in fact, worse. Time is not a great healer. It's a little bit like, um, I'm sure this would never happen in your household, but let's just say that somebody in your household left the lid off the milk and then they left the milk out of the fridge. Now, I know that would never happen any, you know, in any of our homes, but let's just say that it did, and it was left for a few days, and it just started, you know, it used to be really lovely, sweet, fresh milk, but after a while, well, it turns out it's gone a bit sour. Now, if we were to take that sour milk and we were to pour it into a glass jar and we were to screw the lid on really tightly and put it on the shelf for a couple of years, we might hope and expect that that milk is no longer sour and actually it's turned, turned out to be fresh after all. But we all know that if we were to take the lid off that glass jar, it would be a threat to human health. Time is not a great healer. Second principle don't ignore the elephant. Some of us don't have the luxury of um, avoiding people who we've fallen out with. And so we do something slightly different. We don't avoid them. What we do is we, we speak to them all the time, but we just don't talk about the thing. You know, it's like uh, we'll talk about the Great British Bake Off and we'll talk about what car you're driving at the moment and we'll talk about the weather, but we just won't talk about the elephant in the room. And the truth is that you can avoid the elephant in the room all you like, but it's not going to make it vanish. All, all it'll do is it'll restrict your freedom. You know, if you imagine in your living room there's a great big elephant, like you can all still fit in the room, but you can't sit on the sofa, you know, because there's no room, and you're just kind of moving around the edges of the room. Notice that Jacob doesn't go to greet Esau and kiss him on both cheeks and say, hey, mate, nice to see you, long time no see. How's the wife? You know, and, and uh, oh, it's nice weather we're having these days. And what car are you driving at the moment? He doesn't do that. He goes to Esau, and as he's heading towards him, he bows down seven times, which is the ancient Hebrew equivalent of saying, listen, we need to talk. You know, let's not just gloss over this thing. Let's not pretend it didn't happen. Let's actually address the issue. Don't ignore the elephant in the room. Uh, thirdly, humility is the best policy. So here comes Esau with his 400 men, and he's ready to duff Jacob up. And here comes Jacob, and he's got a choice to make. And there's a few different options, isn't there? The first option is he could try and shift the blame, or blame somebody else. He could say, well, you know, I know that I perhaps could have done things a bit differently, but just you remember what kind of a brother you were. You remember that time you stole my train set? And remember that time when you flushed my head down the toilet? And to be honest, you know, actually it was really your fault. You know, in the end of the day, okay, so on that day I flipped, but it was your fault. He could have shifted the blame. He could have made excuses. Well, it was a bit unfortunate. You know, on that day I wasn't feeling very well and I had my exams and I was quite stressed out and... And to be honest, I hadn't eaten, and you know how I get when I'm hungry. And so, you know, it was a shame that it happened, but it wasn't really my fault. It, it, you know, it was kind of just a sad coincidence that all of those things happened on the same day. To be honest, nobody in our society ever wants to admit that they're wrong. 
Jacob chooses another option. He goes in humility. And he makes it absolutely clear by this kind of bowing down seven times on the way. He's making it clear. It was my fault. I'm in the wrong. Do you notice the effect, though? It's completely disarming. You know, there is Esau coming with 400 men. He's come, this is an act of violence he's planning here. And yet when Jacob comes and he, he faced down seven times, Esau immediately leaves the men behind, comes running towards him, embracing him and kissing him. Actually, the scholars think that this moment is the moment, that Je- uh, moment in Scripture that Jesus had in his mind when he told the parable of the prodigal son because the language is really, really similar. His complete, his, all of his anger is dissipated in that moment. A few years ago, I had really badly upset a friend of mine. Um, I'd gone for lunch with him. And as we were having lunch together, he talked about how his job was really insecure and how he really wasn't sure what, what he should do with his job situation. And, um, you know, obviously we talked about that stuff and we prayed together. And then I, I, later on that day, I went to go and hang out with somebody else. And as I was hanging out with them, there was kind of a mutual friend. In my mind, I was doing the right thing, but I, I kind of raised it with this guy. I said, oh, I was just meeting with so-and-so earlier on and... and his job is looking really difficult. Do you know whether there's anything that could be done? Or, you know, do you know anyone who's got any jobs going? And in my mind, I was trying to do the right thing. But unfortunately, he then went to speak to somebody else who went to speak to somebody else. And it kind of went round the circle. And um, my friend felt like everyone had been gossiping about him. And he was absolutely furious. And he phoned me up and he said, you need to come over right now. And I went round to see him and he had, he was so angry he was sh- visibly shaking and he'd, he was so worried about what would come out of his mouth when he spoke he'd written down a script of what he'd planned to say and so I sat there and, and he read out this script you, you know, I told you this stuff in confidence and you've just spread it all around the block and, and I don't know about you but in those kind of moments you have all these thoughts that go through your head about well to be honest, it wasn't really quite like that. It wasn't really quite my fault. And, but I was so horrified. I was so shocked at, at the strength of his feeling and his anger towards me that in that moment, I just threw up my hands and I just said, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. I should never have done that. I, I don't know what I was thinking. Please forgive me. But what was so striking, and I'll never forget it, was the way that this anger just dissipated. It just disappeared. And he'd gone from visibly shaking to saying, oh, he was so relieved. It was like, oh, I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so relieved that you've, oh, oh that, I, you can't tell, I can't tell you what that means. And, and almost immediately we were embracing and praying together. And it was like really amazing. Humility is always the best policy. We might want to shift the blame. We might want to make excuses. But that is not the way to mend relationships. And actually, do you notice as well that uh, Esau also reciprocates with humility? 
It would have been so easy for him to go, yeah, well, it's a good thing you're coming on your face because now is the time when I'm going to duff you up, you know, and don't you remember, you know, you've ruined my life, you have, and you've changed, you know, all those things you did all those years ago, I've never forgotten what you did and I've never forgiven you and I'm going to kick you in the head now. (laughs) But instead, verse 4, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Gracious forgiveness is a powerful thing. And obviously when we're talking about mending relationships, it takes two people, it takes one person to come in humility and throw themselves at the other's feet. And then it takes the other to not lord it over them, but again with humility to uh, embrace them. That's the next thing. Next thing, uh, support without taking sides. Sometimes we get drawn into things, don't we? Because we love people. And so maybe somebody you know, maybe it's your spouse, has uh, suffered pain or hurt or rejection by somebody else. And our immediate response is to go, oh, I can't believe that person did that to you. You should be, if I was you, I'd be really angry about that. You know, I don't know if I'd ever speak to that person again. And we just want to kind of come in and support them and encourage them and, and affirm them. But sometimes the right thing is not to help them, you know, let's get down on our knees together and start to build the foundations of a wall that will be built between you and your friend. Instead, wouldn't it be better if we took our friends and said, do you know what, this could become a really difficult and awkward situation, but why don't we think about how this could be uh, mended rather than the wall built up? We have a choice to make. Do we help one another in these moments, or do we actually make it easier for them to fall out with somebody else? In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul makes clear in his teaching is absolutely the responsibility of God's people. In Philippians chapter 4, there's a moment where these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, have fallen out. And he writes to the church in Philippi, and he says this, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. He's saying, you know, not only am I pleading with these two women, I'm pleading with the people around them too. Help them to build bridges. Help them to mend their relationships. It's similar to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That seems to me what Leah and Rachel and their children are doing in this moment. Uh, Obviously, we don't know the conversations that went on in their household before, but we can see that as at the very moment where Jacob is seeking to make restitution with his brother, there are these uh, wives too, and they come and they join in the restoration. They join in their repentance and they try to make things right. Um, Almost lastly, forgiven relationships may never be the same. There's a really odd twist in this story. I I don't know whether you noticed it, but um, uh, after they've embraced and they've wept together and, and the relationship has been reconciled and there's clearly been forgiveness, Esau invites Jacob back to his house 
for dinner. You know, it's like, oh, it's so great to see you after 20 years, now that we're all mended and, and restored. Why don't you come back to my place? And Esau, sorry, Jacob, he says, oh, yeah, um, yeah, we'll just be there in a minute. You know, we, I, to be honest, we're all a bit tired from the journey, and, you know, the cattle are a bit tired, and, and the kids are tired, so you go on ahead, and we'll come with you. And then Esau says, well, okay, uh, what about if I just leave some of my men to kind of come with you, just to escort you back to my house? You might not remember where it is. And Jacob says, uh, no, there's really no need to do that. We'll just be with you as soon as possible. Don't you worry about that. And then, having said all of that, he doesn't go. He goes somewhere different. And when I read all the commentaries on this passage, there's a bit of confusion over what is really going on there. Some of the commentators are saying, well, this is Jacob up to his old tricks again. You know, this is Jacob, he's scheming, he's deceiving. Poor old Esau, he's forgiven his brother. And even then, uh, there's Jacob going, well, yeah, I'm not going to quite tell you the truth once again. That may well be what's happened. But I read one particular commentary that I really like that says that actually what's happening is in their culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which operates as a shame culture, an honor shame culture, it would have been horribly rude to just say, no, I'm not coming. And so instead of saying, no, I'm definitely not coming to your house, he's politely declining by saying, yeah, I'll get there eventually, don't worry, yeah, we're just going to stay back a little bit and we'll be there soon. He's politely declining. And that sounds like, what, what are you talking about? But it, it just reminded me of when Taryn and I went to Nairobi in Kenya to visit uh, Guy and Susanna Bastable, who are some of our mission partners there. And when we were over there, Susanna was telling us that when you get on a bus, you might say to the bus driver, yeah, excuse me, um, is this the bus that goes to the airport? And the bus driver will say, yes, it is the bus that goes to the airport, on you get. And he's he's not telling the truth. It isn't the bus that goes to the airport. But in, the, in that culture, he just wants to say what you want to hear. And he's kind of saying, you know, he's not wanting to lose face. He's not wanting you to be ashamed or embarrassed. And so he's saying, oh, of course, just get on the bus. You know, this will take you to the airport even when it doesn't. And that to us sounds like, well, it's just potty, isn't it? But that's kind of, it's just a different cultural thing. I think probably Jacob is saying, yeah, actually, I'm not coming. It's really kind of you to invite me, but I'm not going to come. Why would he do that? I think it's because he knows that if he goes with his brother, he'll never be completely safe. You know, 20 years ago, his brother was a violent and angry man. And Jacob has this decision to make. Am I going to take my wife and my children and are we going to go, am I going to put my whole family in a place of danger, potential danger? And so he says, no, no, we can be, there can be forgiveness and there can be a level of reconciliation. But actually, it's not safe to just go back to the way things were before. And if we thought about it, we could think about all kinds of life situations that happen today where forgiveness is absolutely the call of God on our lives as followers of Jesus. But sometimes it's just not safe to go back to the way things were before. And sometimes these things need wisdom for everyone's safety. Last point. Let me have a drink of water. Last point. You are your children's teacher. 
I think it must have been when our daughter was about three years old where um, my wife and I were in the kitchen and then we just could hear uh, our little girl. She'd, she'd picked up her dolly by the hair and she'd walked it over to the naughty step and she'd put this dolly on the naughty step and she was saying, I can't believe you're late home again. You know, why could you not have phoned? You're always late home from, from work and I'm absolutely exhausted and the kids have been driving me up the wall and... Uh, you know, for goodness sake, next time, could you just phone and let me know you're going to be late home for dinner? That was awkward. <laughs> Oops. Our children watch and learn from everything that we do. And obviously there are a bunch of people here and you don't have children, but for those of us who do, who is watching this moment of reconciliation and restoration? It's Joseph. Joseph and his brothers. Joseph may be just a toddler at this point. It's a moment in his very early childhood, but he is watching how do relationships work and how does forgiveness and reconciliation work and what effort should we go to to try and make amends? We have an absolutely amazing uh, children's ministry team in our church. Where we have well over 100 people who volunteer week in, week out to serve our children. And it is absolutely world-class, the things that they do. You know, and, and, and um, they're so creative. And they're introducing our children to Jesus. And they're helping them to grow and develop in their love for Scripture. And, and they're helping them to, to receive and practice with the spiritual gifts. Uh, and they're deepening in their faith, and they're processing what it's like to be a Christian at school, and all of these kind of things. It's absolutely amazing. And for us as parents, we have to recognize that our children learn so much from the way that we interact, and the way that we relate to other people, and the way that we seek forgiveness, and seek to make amends with people who we've fallen out with. And so for, for the sake of our own relationships and for the sake of the ones that we love and for the sake of the church and for the sake of our children, we must look in the rearview mirror of our lives and face the feathers. Why don't we stand?